From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. She donated a portion of her liver to a stranger. At first, I had a lot of self-stigma. Like, this is a really weird thing to do. Like, why are you doing this? Plus, a researcher who studies what are called altruistic donors. If you show people pictures of people in distress or if they watch, you know, for example, somebody experiencing pain, they have a stronger empathic response. In fact, their brains are noticeably different. Plus, why the pandemic has meant a greater need for liver transplants. Then, a counseling professor from Colorado returns to Ukraine to support people's mental health there. What tools can he equip them with, even as bombs are falling? And the balance between public safety and over-policing. We put the issue to candidates for Denver mayor. I'm Marty Jewell, and I've donated several cars to CPR. I donated my cars because, first of all, it was too much of a hassle to try and sell one. And I found the process of donating so much easier. Just fill out some paperwork online and wait for the tow truck. That was it. Donating my cars is the way I support the station. Donate your car at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Today, two lives that have become forever linked. A woman in Denver, who you'll meet shortly, and a woman in the small town of Santa Teresa, New Mexico, who needed a stranger's help to survive. CPR's Andrea Dukakis picks up the story. Letty Ortiz was diagnosed with hepatitis C shortly after moving to the United States from Mexico. That was nearly 17 years ago. At the time, Ortiz says the doctor asked her lots of questions about her medical history. Me dijo que probablemente por una transfusión de sangre que tuve en Ciudad Juárez, seguro Ortiz says the doctor told her she probably got hepatitis C from a blood transfusion she'd had in Mexico. Later, doctors in the U.S. removed a small tumor from Ortiz's liver, then a second tumor. Hepatitis C is one of the main causes of liver cancer. Eventually, Ortiz's doctor told her she'd need a liver transplant. She was referred to the University. University of Colorado Hospital and prepared herself to wait. But then she got a call. Ortiz says they told her that they'd found a living donor, that is a person who they didn't know, had volunteered to donate part of their liver. Livers regenerate, which makes living donations possible. A liver can also come from a deceased donor. A couple of months later, Ortiz and her husband came to Denver for the surgery. It went well. At a follow-up appointment, she was handed an envelope. Ortiz says one of the hospital's social workers gave her the envelope. It had a card inside. I just wrote a card, which they gave to my recipient. That's Letty Ortiz's donor. So I'm Rachel Davis. I'm a psychiatrist and associate professor at University of Colorado Anschutz, and I'm the vice chair for clinical affairs. Rachel Davis thinks it was her first year in medical school when she first learned how liver donations work. And like as soon as I heard about that you could donate part of your liver and it would grow back, I thought that is really cool. I want to do that. So I actually outreached at the time the director of liver transplant, and he, oddly enough, took me seriously and met with me 
but at the time, non-directed or anonymous donation wasn't really a thing. And he told me, well, we need to refer you for a psychological evaluation. And, you know, as a 21-year-old, that kind of freaked me out. I'm like, well, this is probably a weird thing to do. I don't know if I really want to do that. She really didn't have time as a med student anyway. So she put the liver donor idea on a back burner. One night doing something else, I saw an article and there was like a link to fill out the form. And I just really, without even thinking, I just filled it out. And then I got a call the next day and I'm like, well, I guess I'm doing this. About a year ago, doctors removed more than half of Davis's liver and transplanted it to Letty Ortiz. Davis says for her, the recovery was intense. She was in the hospital for seven days and took four weeks off of work. She has a huge scar that goes from her ribcage to below her navel. Sometimes if she stretches, the area feels kind of tight, but that's about the only side effect. Her liver's grown back to nearly the same size. And I spent a lot of time thinking about, like, why why did I do this? Like, at first, I had a lot of self-stigma, too. Like, this is a really weird thing to do. Like, why are you doing this? And also realizing that other people will probably think it's a very strange thing to do. And I used to be kind of embarrassed to talk about it. But she isn't embarrassed about it anymore. She wants to get her story out so others will do it, too. There's actually research on people like Rachel Davis. Abigail Marsh, a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Georgetown University, has studied those she calls altruistic donors, people who donate even though they have no connection to the recipient and know they may never meet. So I've been doing research for now about 10 years where we bring in altruistic donors to the lab and do lots and lots of testing, including brain scans, to try to see is there something that makes people who are willing to help strangers in this way different from a typical person. Turns out there is. So I also study people who are psychopathic and who have you know very little empathy and compassion. And I know what their brains look like. And it seems that people who are very altruistic have brains that look the opposite. So they're more sensitive to other people's distress thanks to the structure and function of a structure called the amygdala in the brain. The amygdala is actually about 10% larger in these altruistic donors than in the general population, much smaller in people who are psychopathic. And she does other tests on these donors. If you show people pictures of people in distress or if they watch you know, for example, somebody experiencing pain, they have a stronger empathic response, both in the amygdala and then in other brain structures involved in empathy. So they seem to have a strong empathic response, even to strangers. Whereas most people, when they respond empathically, primarily respond that way to people that they're close to. Back to Rachel Davis and Letty Ortiz. When Ortiz got that card from Davis, she wanted to meet. Ortiz and her husband were still in the Denver area for follow-up treatment. So I got to meet her about a month after I donated. Letty Ortiz can't talk about the meeting without choking up. She says Davis's donation is a miracle from God. She says she's glad to know her and will always send her blessings. Soon, Rachel Davis will travel to New Mexico to visit Letty and Manny Ortiz. They call her Raquel. Davis doesn't speak Spanish, so Manny will translate. Letty wants Davis to meet her children, and the couple plans to take her to one of the best steakhouses nearby in West Texas. Dr. Elizabeth Pomfret of UC Health did Rachel Davis's surgery. 
Her husband, Dr. James Pompicelli, transplanted the portion of Davis's liver into Letty Ortiz. Dr. Pomfret says the good news is there's been a cure for hepatitis C in recent years. That means fewer people like Letty needing transplants. But unfortunately, the number of people needing a liver transplant overall has not decreased. In fact, it's increasing, and it's increasing because of liver disease related to alcohol use. There's been an especially sharp increase in people requiring liver transplantation for alcohol, especially during the COVID years. And there's a lot of data in the literature now that show that alcohol use pretty much mirrored the sale of alcohol in the United States. And both of those had curves that were pretty much a straight line trajectory upward. The number of patients listed for transplant during the you know, two-year period of the COVID pandemic and subsequently has increased dramatically. You know, there's probably a lot of different reasons for it, but certainly the isolation, having stressors from so many different directions, whether it was their job or trying to homeschool their children and all of the different financial stresses that they were having and health issues that really spiked during that two to three year period of time, in addition to obviously just COVID itself. And Pomfret says the alcohol issue has meant a new demographic in need of liver transplants. We're definitely seeing a much younger cohort of people coming in with, you know, end-stage liver disease from alcohol than we had historically. And, you know, that's been very disturbing and sad, you know, to see people in their 30s and, you know, late 20s even coming in very, very ill uh, from, you know, just a dramatic increase in the amount of alcohol that they were, you know, drinking during the COVID period, especially in, in the United States, especially. Do you think people might be reluctant to donate part of their liver to someone they don't know if it's alcohol related? It may well be. You know, I think that most people who are awaiting a transplant for alcoholic liver disease have typically engaged in some sort of counseling and alcohol cessation. Not all patients who are going, you know, for a liver transplantation for alcohol are able to do that because some of them are just too sick at the time that they're presenting to the transplant program with their liver disease. But as far as non-directed donation, so not knowing a person, that's, it's not necessarily shared with the donor. Some donors might state that they specifically want to donate to a child or to, you know, someone who does not have liver disease because of alcohol, but it's actually pretty rare for someone to state that they have a particular person that they don't want to donate to. Usually people who are donating to someone that they don't know don't have any stipulations. Dr. Pomfret says the need far exceeds the number of donors. There are always more patients who are awaiting liver transplantation than there are available organs. So each year, about 20% of the people who are waiting for transplant die waiting 
or become too sick for a transplant. And that's where the need for living donor organs has come up. We know that that's a fairly common thing for kidneys. You hear about that quite a bit in the news. And uh, we're hearing more about people donating parts of their liver, but it's more unusual to hear about people who are donating a part of their liver to someone that they don't know. One reason, Pomfret says, is the surgery is more complicated. For kidney donation, we have two kidneys. So donating one of your kidneys leaves you still with with a functioning kidney. We only have one liver. So to donate a part of your liver, it means splitting the liver. And that's a more difficult operation associated with more risk. And I think there is probably less awareness that it is possible to split the liver. It's not as widely known that being able to be a liver donor, you don't have to be related to the person. You don't have to have, you know, any close genetic matching. So there are definitely differences between liver donation and kidney donation. Dr. Pomfret says most liver transplants don't involve living donors. The vast majority of the types of liver transplants we do are from deceased donors where it's the whole liver coming from a stranger all right, who has died in such a way that we can use the liver. So that's 95% of the liver transplants done in the United States are done that way. Of the living donor liver transplants, most of them are typically the donor does know the recipient. They don't have to be related, but they may be, you know, a spouse or a best friend or a brother, sister or something like that. About 1%, typically, or less than 1%, are people who don't know one another. It's just someone who decides they want to donate to someone who's on the list. In our program, it's a higher proportion of people who are what we call non directed. They don't know the person. So that's more around. 14, 15% of our population rather than less than 1%. Have you noticed that there's a particular kind of person that makes the decision to donate an organ to someone they don't know and have never met? In general, we see that very often it is people who have shown altruistic tendencies throughout their life. So they might be people who have uh, been long-time blood donors and things like that. Very often, they're people with a military background or people who have strong religious backgrounds, people in professions where they're, they're helping people, whether that's nursing or EMT or a teacher, you know, to see that sort of a person come forward as a potential non-directed donor. And if someone wants to donate part of their liver, what are the parameters? Are there age restrictions and other restrictions? There are, and, and it's a pretty extensive evaluation. The person has to at least be 18 years old to, you know, consent for a procedure on their body. The upper age limit is 57 at this point. Somewhere between 55 and 60, the liver does regenerate less well over the age of 60. So, you know, we really look at things on a case-by-case basis. And then there are a number of other things. You know, it's a very, very thorough evaluation of the donor. And what about the need for other 
organs, uh, for say kidney donations or others? Well, for there's every, whether we're talking about kidney or liver, those are two organs that you can do living donation. Lung, although it's possible to do living donation, it's very unusual. And heart, obviously, you can't do living donation. Pancreas is another type of transplant that we can do. Every type of transplant, there's more patients waiting than there are organs. Dr. Pomfret, thanks so much. Thank you. CPR's Andrea Dukakis with Dr. Elizabeth Pomfret. They discussed, among other things, how pandemic alcohol use has increased the need for liver donations. When we come back, can you tend to your mental health in a war zone? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Caught in an avalanche, buried under thousands of pounds of snow. It had always been one of Scott Benj's greatest fears. Then it happened. I couldn't move a finger. I mean, I couldn't move anything. I can tell you it's much scarier than you can ever imagine. A backcountry skier reflects on his survival and choices. Read his story and see pictures at CPR.org. War is one of the biggest traumas one can endure, which is why a veteran-turned-counselor has traveled to western Ukraine to help people cope with the psychological effects. Josh Kramer is an associate professor of counseling at Colorado Christian University. He's actually been to Ukraine some 20 times over the years, helping create a master's program in counseling there. Kramer has also worked with the United Nations on trauma-informed care for migrants. And Professor, thanks for being with us from Ukraine. Thank you, Ryan. Right now you're doing a retreat for 125 people, a mix of adults and youth. Uh, That word retreat sounds like a relative luxury during wartime. Uh, First off, describe where you are and then maybe give us an example of someone you're helping. Sure, yeah. We're in western Ukraine and uh, I would just emphasize the that we, uh, the the counselors that are here, we're calling it a retreat. They've actually called it a conference, is how they've called it. But it is at uh, what most in the U.S. would consider a retreat center. Uh, it's an it's a facility that's just a lovely facility up in the mountains, the Carpathian Mountains. Uh, they have a swimming pool, a gym, lovely grounds to walk on, even a sculpture garden. And so the setting itself is uh, therapeutic, uh, just in and of itself. Mm. And uh, that's a very important thing for people in this this war zone, the whole country being a war zone, to have a retreat and escape from the reality of their daily life. Um, so I'm glad that we we found this place to host this event and do the work that we do. Um, so yeah, we've gotten to work with with many people here thus far. And I think one of the most common themes that we're hearing is people are um, starting to fray from the longevity of this war and still such amazing resilience that the people of Ukraine have. Um, and just just starting to, like I said, fray at the edges. I just finished a session actually with somebody and it was a uh, female client and her husband is on what they call the front, so the front lines. Mm-hmm. Um, and she shared that it was very difficult because he had left 
and then he was able to come back for a couple months and then they sent him right back to the front. Um, so there's a lot of unknown. And I think that's that's the most difficult thing to know. They passed the one year anniversary of Russians invading their country. Recently, they passed this anniversary and many thought it would be done by now. So, so they're contending with just how long this is going on. And do you think they're in yes. shock? Or are you dealing with shock? You know, that that's one of the initial phases of uh, a trauma such as war that we would say it's closer to the beginning that it's shock. People have moved through their stages of, of this whole thing. And not that there's still not shock, but people start to get sensitized to um, a lot of what's going on. And for example, the first time they hear a mortar or some kind of a rocket hit, they hit the ground. Uh, when they hear the alarm, there's an app that most Ukrainians have, and there's an alarm that says when there's an incoming projectile of some sort in their region, it goes off. And I have sat at meals with people and seen these alarms going off in their home regions, not here where we are. And they just kind of go, eh, it's okay. We're, we're, we're in a safe place. But they do the same thing even when they're back home in that region. They've gotten... Uh, really desensitized to a lot of that. What are tools you can equip people with to deal with the psychological effects of war? Uh, give me an example. Sure, yeah. So we actually taught the entire group today, this morning here, Ukraine, Ukraine time. Uh, we were teaching them some of these strategies. So much of what we have been teaching them has been uh, what we call grounding techniques, um, reminding them that even though they feel the loss of control at the unknown surrounding their current situation, reminding them of the things that they can control, such as being present with themselves instead of letting um, what's going on around them dictate uncertainty and chaos saying, what are some things you can control? And it really gets down to the basics, such as breathing. So we did some breathing exercises with them. And it, it can sound deceptively simple, mm. uh, but these are very powerful techniques that help them maintain a sense of clear, calm, rational thinking that they need to persevere through um, what they're experiencing. Are these folks who have lost loved ones? Yeah, many of them have. One of the other things we did today uh, was we created a memorial wall. And we had the idea that um, people, uh, supportive people around someone who's lost someone don't often know what to say or do, so they end up doing nothing. And the person who lo who's lost somebody really does want to kind of acknowledge the loss and uh, just the name of the person. So we created a space on this wall for uh, participants of this retreat to just simply write the name of a loved one. And uh, we saw many people going up to the wall and getting very emotional and others would come around them and support them. And um, so, yeah, the list, it's its a butcher block piece of paper up on the wall and its it's pretty full. If you're just joining us, this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and I'm speaking with veteran-turned-counselor Josh Kraymeyer of Colorado Christian University. He is back in Ukraine for something like a 21st time, uh, helping people cope with the effects of war. His relationship with Ukraine is actually quite long, and 
uh, involves helping create a master's of counseling there. Uh, and this work uh, indeed precedes the war. So, Josh, I have to think that there's the grief of losing someone, but there's also the grief of just losing your old life. I mean, just like how things were. Uh, do you hear them describing just a craving for what was? Yeah, we, we, we hear that a lot. And I've got, you know, several experiences that kind of illustrate that point. The first one uh, that comes to mind is not long after uh, the Russians crossed the border in February of 22, um, there had been a family that I had been working with and the mother called me for some support. And she was in a metro station deep underground, uh, those conveniently doubled as bomb shelters. She was down there with a few hundred people hunkered down in this this uh, subway station. Um, and she was just in panic and said, what can I do? Um, and I, I, another deceptively simple thing is I reminded her of the power of routine for her and for her children. And I simply said, I recommended that she read her children a bedtime story. She, sh she said she had a suitcase full of books. So then I had the idea to tap into that routine, which I knew was something she had done before the invasion. Mm. And um, I talked to her after that and she thanked me because it was something that was helpful. It helped the children be calm to do something normal, you know, from their, their traditional uh, daily routine. So little things like that, again, that are deceptively simple, they, they have been very helpful. Breathing and routine. Is this something, if the war were to end, even in a year or two, is this something that will affect people for the rest of their lives? I believe so. Yeah, it's hard to not have this have a ripple effect even through the generations. And um, in fact, there's a field of study that, you know, focuses on generational trauma, and it's often tied to uh, events like war. Generational trauma. That is to say, even if you were a very young child, at the time of the trauma, uh, or, or I don't, maybe you're even saying if you hadn't been born yet, there's going to be a transference of trauma from parent to child, from generation to generation. Is that right? This is true. Yeah. There's even, you know, in the womb, in utero, you know, there's some impact with the, the chemicals and, and different things. Um, and there's been, you know, research around this that shows that uh, genetic predispositions uh, that are influenced by things such as war can be passed on. It's a, it's the cutting edge of research. They're uh, just starting to discover more and more. But um, I know that from, you know, the research, but also what I've seen, just the, the ripple effect through society of war. You described where this conference, this retreat is going on in the mountains, in relative peace, based on where you are in Ukraine. But is there some sense in that space that a war is going on? Surprisingly, no. Where we huh. are, we got to stop in the city uh, on the way in the little village that's just outside of this retreat area. And um, I've been since since February of last year, I've been in Ukraine a few times and closer to the front, not right at the front, uh, but there were more more signs. There were 
checkpoints at every village or town that we drove through. There were sandbags in many different places around towns. I did not see as much of that here. And we're about as far west as you can get, almost to the border of um, Romania. And um, so I did see some sandbags uh, in a couple of areas. Um, but what I've seen here is that there was a lot of rejuvenation, actually. I, I felt like the, the roads and the highways that we drove on were smoother. I noticed some new road signs that had not just the Cyrillic names of the villages, but also in um, uh, letters and, and somewhere in English as well, which to me kind of highlighted that what we're fighting for here is to be more aligned with uh, the West and specifically Europe. And many Ukrainians do consider themselves, you know, part of Europe. Um, so that's what I noticed here more mm. the further West I've gotten. Thank you so much for sharing this with us and stay safe. Thank you so much. We'll Josh, Josh Kraymeyer, Associate Professor of Counseling at Colorado Christian University, is running that conference in Ukraine to help people cope with the effects of war, a mix of adults and young people. And Colorado Matters continues shortly with what some of the candidates for Denver mayor had to say at a forum last night, sponsored by Denverite, our sister publication. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. The newest podcast from Colorado Public Radio called Terra Firma brings you the sounds of nature with reflections from Colorado-born writer C. Marie Furman. I hope that you find Terra Firma a place where you're not being pulled away, but pulled to a few minutes to connect to a story, to a landscape, and to yourself. Find Terra Firma wherever you get your podcasts. Supported by Credit Union of Colorado. Housing, crime, mental health, and equity. All those topics were on the table Tuesday night at a Denver mayoral forum. Our sister publication, Denverite, played host, along with nonprofits that serve marginalized communities. Altogether, seven of the candidates took part. CPR's Nathan Heffel and May Ortega moderated. Each candidate got a set amount of time to respond and two chances to rebut. Crime rates are on the minds of many Denverites, and sometimes the call to action has been to increase policing. However, increased police presence can disproportionately affect black and brown men. Starting with Kelly Bruff, how would you ensure addressing public safety doesn't lead to the over-policing of black and brown communities? Uh, a few things. Um, first, uh, my highest priority for, frankly, uh, community safety would be that we send the right responder to the right issue. And we know today our STAR program and our co-responder program are really working, but we don't have enough. So I would, on day one, at least expand that program by 50%. The data at 911 tells us we could probably even double that program. Uh, but sending a mental health professional is working much better for everybody involved. With regard to police themselves, I think this is where we have to have a mayor who's willing to hold police accountable while we also provide them the support we need. I would work community by community to address the issues of over-policing and make sure that the community is getting the safety and services you need. Um, by the way, when you look at our crime rate, particularly our murder rate last year, uh, it was one of our highest in decades. 80% of the victims were people of color. So we have to figure out communi in community how we address that issue without over-policing. Debbie Ortega. 
Thank you. So crime and safety is one of the issues that um, is challenging our city today. We have too many guns on our streets. We have deadly lethal drugs that are coming into our city. They're in our schools. They're killing people. And I think it's important to address those issues as part of the crime that's impacting a lot of our young people as well. Um, I believe that having the right kind of support programs, um, I can remember growing up here where our rec centers were the go-to place. They're not so much that anymore in all of our neighborhoods because our neighborhoods have been gentrified and those rec centers are providing more programming for the people who live in the neighborhood. We don't have the sports teams that used to travel across the city where you would build relationships with kids in other neighborhoods. I think it's important to look at things like that, um, make sure that we have jobs and other offerings for our young people especially so that they are they, they have other outlets and that we're doing everything we can to address the needs in our communities. Thank, Thank you. you. Leslie Herod. Mass incarceration has had a huge impact on people that look like me, not just men, but women as well. My sister served 30 years in and out of prison um, because of policies like zero tolerance, three strikes, you're out, um, specifically around addiction. She was addicted to drugs, became addicted um, after she was sexually assaulted when she was 16. No one got her help, no one helped her, and she just continued the cycle of poverty, incarceration, and addiction. We know that if we want to get at the heart of that, we've got at the heart of crime, we've got to get at the root causes. You know, they want you to believe that they understand mass incarceration while at the same time talking about incarcerating folks who are living on the streets unhoused. Who is that going to disproportionately impact? Us. Right? And so what I know and what I believe is that we have to continue on our path as Colorado and as Denverites on ending mass incarceration, on pushing back on the war on drugs, on stopping to dehumanize and incarcerate people simply because they live differently, but instead offer help and resources. We talk about STAR. I work with Servicios de la Raza and so many others to bring STAR here. That's and time. There Thank we you. go. Thank you. Mike Johnston. Uh, thank you. Big topic for 60 seconds. I think there are four things that are really important. One is recruiting. One is training. One is the roles we ask people to take. And one is the deployment. I think on recruiting, we want to make sure we are recruiting far more public servants from the communities that they are policing. So they're actually uh, have connections to and relationships in those neighborhoods. I think the second is we want to do far more training and support around preparing people to de-escalate and be able to help uh, mitigate situations as opposed to escalate them into much more conflict-laden situations. I think the third is about what is the role we're asking people to play. I think I believe it's time to go back to far more community-based policing where you have people that are out walking beats, talking talking to neighbors, meeting with small businesses, having relationships, having business cards. Uh, and the other is um, uh, the first, the last one is deployment, which is how do you make sure the right first responder is responding to the right situation. If you have folks in a mental health crisis, you want a mental health responder. If you have someone in a potential overdose situation, you want a paramedic or an EMT. If you have someone that said there's car stolen, you want an officer. But the key is to make sure you're sending the right first responders to the right incidents. Thank you. Chris Hansen. Thank you. Uh, I want to be really clear with the voters of Denver. I believe the number one priority as your next mayor is to rebuild the Department, Department of Public Safety. Right now, we are at a moment where hundreds of officers short in DPD. We are hundreds of officers short within the Sheriff's Department. And if we don't rebuild a great public safety department, all of our other plans and our other departments are not going to function. This is the number one goal, number one job for the next mayor. 
And I'm so proud to have earned the support of the frontline sheriffs through their union, the Teamsters. They've given me their support because they know this is the top priority. Our jail is in a crisis. Our police department needs more recruitment, more retention, and better training so they can do their job. We need high accountability. I've supported that at the state level, made sure every officer in the state has body cameras. That's good for everybody. And we have to get the right response at the right time. That means sending police when they're needed only and getting the right people there when it's a mental health crisis or a drug issue. That is where how we move Denver forward. Thank you. Kwame Spearman? So our neighborhoods are not as safe as they need to be right now. And there are two sides of this equation. The first are root causes. Root causes are we're also in a drug epidemic right now. And so we need to look at some of the laws that we have passed that have made it easier to get drugs on our street. We also are not able to confront crime the way that we used to be able to because we've passed laws that have made it harder for police to do their job. We've got to fix those root problems immediately. There are people on this stage who voted that in ways that I think have made Denver less safe. Secondly, on how we get out of it, I agree, we've got to have community policing, and that's why we need a neighborhood mayor to get that done. In addition to having community policing, we also have to have a pipeline of police officers that are coming from Denver. You know, you used to be required to live in the city and county of Denver to be a police officer. Now 85% of our police officers live outside of the city and county of Denver. And lastly, we've got to expand the STAR program. That's a key tenet of my neighborhood plan, that the STAR program should be applicable all throughout the city and county of Denver. Thank you. Thank you. And Lisa Calderon? We have a uh, oh. rebuttal. Leslie Herod. Thank you. I want to make clear that I am proud of the work that we did to pass police accountability right here in Colorado and led by the people of Denver. We met the moment when we saw the murder of George Floyd on our smartphones. We met the moment when we saw and heard Elijah McClain's mother call out for more action. We marched the streets together and said, we will have police accountability. Make no mistake, my dad is a law enforcement officer. He's the best man I know. But there's no reason why one profession should not be held accountable when they do harm in our communities. I'm proud of the work that we've done, and I know that we can demand the best out of our police department, not lower our standards. That's time. Thank you. And uh, if you'd like to respond, you're welcome to respond. Sure. I, I actually wasn't critiquing anything that you did with the police officers. I was actually talking about votes that you and Senator Hansen took on how we dealt with fentanyl and what we did with auto theft. We are number one in auto theft right now because we've taken what used to be a felony down to a misdemeanor. And more ironically for me is we did it for the cheapest possible cars, cars that are below $2,000. These are cars that are traditionally driven by people of color, and now our prosecutors don't have the mechanisms that they need to stop the crime from occurring. And so that's what I was hitting. Kenna, that's time. Not your work on police officers. Thank, Thank you. you. I appreciate that. And I want to make clear uh, that you have to understand legislation when you're talking about remedies and solutions. The bill you were talking about was actually written before Chris or myself were even in the legislature because we've set up these schemes that say okay. if you're poor, you have a different response than if you're wealthy. I want to make clear on that, and actually I think this outlet actually reported on the fact that that is completely untrue. That bill around car theft was passed before our time. Thank you, candidates. Time. Let's Thank let you. Ms. Calderon answer the question, please. Thank you. 
This is getting good. <laughs> this is the kind of debate we've needed to have, but this is also where the conversation, again, about equity comes back. This is a difference between lived experience and talking points, right? I was uh, uh, lecturing at CU Boulder as a criminal legal system professor uh, when my son was being assaulted by DPD and I could not keep him safe. And I could not get our elected officials to see that more aggressive policing during the broken windows era was not keeping our community safe. So if you did not know these were Democrats sitting up here, you would be shocked because they sound like Republicans who want to take us back to the tough on crime and the war on poverty years. More police does not equal more safety for communities of color. It increases the risk to us in a different way. So my son was afraid of both gang members and police officers. We have to address police violence. Two years past the murder of George Floyd, we have more police killings than before he was uh, before he was murdered. So when we hear this ticking off of a list and deployment and all of that, I'm saying you are not sitting with our children. You are not staying, uh, wake, uh, waking up in the middle of the night wondering if your child is gonna come home safe. That's the kind of conversation we need to be having and not about these lists about when to deploy police officers. We are time. so Canada. beyond Canada. reform. Thank you, uh, that is time. I we need it. to reimagine the institution of policing. Thank you. Can oh. I do a rebuttal? Sure. Kelly Brown? Um, I just want to add, I think maybe the best way for me to highlight how I would address uh, over-policing in communities is to tell you how I built my public safety policy. And so I brought together someone like uh, Denise Maez, from a former executive of the ACLU, Al LaCabe, a former manager of safety and police officer, Bill Ritter, a former district attorney and governor of the state of Colorado, to build a policy so that we could address the views of our city that are multiple and varied and find a path forward that respects the rights of all Denver. Thank you, Ms. Brown. Ms. Calderon, you can respond. Yeah, oh, so it was as if I never said anything. You tick off people who are supporting you, but you're not hearing the cries of mothers, of parents who fear for our children. I know those people as well. Good for you. I listen to these people. I listen to community. I listen to their stories. I've sat with them. I've, I've hold, held mothers who have cried after their children have been killed by the police. So this isn't about who is backing you. The community is who I look to to back me. That is an excerpt of The People's Forum, moderated Tuesday night by CPR's Nathan Heffel and May Ortega. Denverite hosted the event in partnership with nonprofits focused on underserved communities. We'll share more of the debate in coming days, including questions of equity, housing instability, and environmental racism. Watch the entire forum for yourself at cpr.org mayor. Ballots for the Denver election hit the mail on Monday. Okay, when we come back, as more people try to go green, excel, has them seeing red. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Spring is coming to Colorado and one sign, the return of the sandhill crane. A big gray bird with a crimson colored crown. The sandhill crane can be four feet tall with a six foot wingspan. And every March, the Southern Colorado town of Monta Vista celebrates the sandhill crane as one massive flock makes a stopover on its way north for the summer. It's a site some call one of North America's greatest wildlife phenomena. Tens of thousands of cranes descending on the San Luis Valley. 
And in the fields, some begin an elaborate courtship dance, huge wings spread, heads bobbing, and all the while making a sound almost unlike any other herald of springtime. A Colorado Postcard from Colorado Public Radio with the support of Coble and Company. Maybe you've noticed more solar panels on homes these days, yet many aren't generating electricity. There's a delay at Excel Energy to hook them up to the grid. Some customers have waited months, as CPR's Matt Bloom found. Yeah, a little wobbly. Yeah, yeah, I think you put your full weight on that. It's a recent afternoon in Lakewood, and I find myself climbing up a wooden ladder with Laura Reed. She's showing me something on the roof of her family's home. They've got a pretty cool new design. From up here, we can see her whole backyard, her chimney stack, and on the south-facing pitch of her roof, a brand new set of sleek black solar panels. Reed got them installed around Thanksgiving last year. My partner and I are both environmental engineers, interested in climate, water, uh, helping build sustainability across our neighborhoods, and just in Colorado, we have 300 days of sunshine. Makes sense to try and uh, utilize that free energy. The sun is actually shining on them as we speak. But there's a problem, Reed says. Now, over three months after they got installed, they still haven't been connected to the electric grid. So that energy that they could be generating and putting back into the, the house and, and onto the grid is not um, connected. So they're just waiting. Waiting for Excel Energy, her utility, to approve her application and plug her in so the panels can power her home and give the extra energy back to the grid. She's not alone. Roughly 4,000 Coloradans have found themselves in a similar situation this winter. The company is dealing with an unprecedented backlog in what they call interconnection applications. The delays are causing headaches for homeowners and solar panel companies who do the installing. We have two things that are happening. Mike Kruger is head of the Colorado Solar and Storage Association. It's the largest trade group of home solar panel contractors in the state. Uh, one is the Inflation Reduction Act has definitely increased consumer awareness and homeowner awareness. Uh, combine that with a you know huge spike in bills that we've seen due to natural gas prices. So that's that has driven demand. At the same time, Kruger says. Excel's IT portal for the applications has had some bugs. And it's been an unmitigated disaster, an absolute disaster uh, from the beginning. It was, and, and as happens, when things are a disaster, they pile up. The result? Applications that usually only take weeks to approve are now taking much, much longer. We were now looking at two months, three months, sometimes six months to get interconnected. Excel, for the record, has admitted the portal is a mess. And they're working on clearing up issues and training contractors on how to use it properly. Jack Eiley is with Excel Energy. We do apologize to the customers who have recently re experienced interconnection delays. He says they've staffed up the IT portal and are furiously working through all the people in line. So we're really getting quickly on track to finish by early March and, and work through this, this backlog that has caused some, some frustration. Eiley's advice to homeowners is to work with your contractor early on to make sure they have an interconnection application complete before spending an arm and a leg to install the panels. That's not helpful to our roof-climbing Lakewood homeowner, Laura Reed, though, who is still waiting to hear back from Excel. Yeah, it's painful to look up at the solar panels when they aren't doing any work. 
In the meantime, she's paying sky-high gas bills to heat her home, on top of loan payments for her new panels. That's pushed her monthly energy costs up to around $700 this winter. You know, Excel, it is a monopoly. We don't have a choice for a utility company, uh, and it it is too bad that we don't have a choice of picking because it seems like we don't have a lot of power. State regulators have rolled out a plan to punish Excel for future backlogs, but that won't do much to ease the pain this winter. Still, Reed doesn't regret her choice to get home solar. Once the switch is flipped, she says she'll save hundreds of dollars a month and have enough extra energy to power an electric car. All that and an excuse to bring visitors up on her roof to show off the view. Don't laugh at me. I'm going to go no, really slow. Laugh. You could go down on all fours and I would laugh. Maybe then she can invest in a less wobbly ladder to get back down. Good. I'm Matt Bloom for CPR News. Finally today, our state's weather can be unpredictable, but there are relative certainties, something we got a question about through Colorado Wonders. This is Marlene Sassaman in the Navajo Ranch district of Walsenburg. My question is, what causes the consistent high winds in the southern front range south of Pueblo and west of Walsenburg in the Navajo Ranch area? It's right along Highway 160, west of Walsenburg. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we called up Denver 7 Chief Meteorologist Mike Nelson for some insight. The answer to that question about the strong winds is very similar to what causes the strong winds up in Boulder County and along Highway 93. The mountains are right there, and the air can't go through them. It's got to go around them and through the canyons. And so it is much like when you walk downtown in Denver and the wind is blowing and you get between a couple of tall buildings. It's called the Venturi effect. You're squeezing all that air in between those tall buildings and it gets very windy. We're squeezing all that air in between the mountain peaks and through the canyons. Same thing happens down in the Walsenburg area as it does up toward Boulder County. The reason that the National Wind Technology Lab is up there along Highway 93 is not because they necessarily have the most wind all the time, but they get extreme winds coming through there and they can stress test those big wind turbines for really strong winds. The Venturi effect. I'm so grateful you have brought that up. Uh, According to one article, an example that almost everybody has experienced is when they place their thumb at the end of the garden hose to create that stronger stream. So that's happening with wind. That's happening with air. Yep. Denver 7 Chief Meteorologist Mike Nelson answering a Colorado Wonders question. What do you wonder about? Pose your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to a team that often makes my job a breeze. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. 
Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. You're with CPR News and KRCC.